if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be starting our next section of Hebrews chapter 12. As we spent several weeks going through the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12, I had the opportunity to remind you of the contents of Hebrews chapter 11, which was men and women of faith who had endured great hardship, and yet they kept their eye on the Lord. They were imperfect, they were sinners, they had many failures, but their faith is supposed to encourage us. And in verses 1 through 3, which really could be seen of as the end of chapter 11, instead of the beginning of chapter 12, really were an exhortation. They were the so what of why did we learn all of that history. They were the so what of all of those examples of faith. And the idea is those examples of faith should encourage us to go and do likewise. The faith we have enables us to walk in obedience just like they were able to walk. No matter the hardships, no matter the difficulties, we have the ability by faith to live a victorious life. And so the whole focus of an athletic metaphor in verses 1 through 3 was we are in a race. It is a marathon. It is not a sprint. We need to keep going. We need to have our eye on the prize just like Jesus Christ did. And we need to be looking to the future while we live in the present. And even as we look to the future, meaning the ultimate goal, we also are looking backwards and being encouraged by those examples as we day by day put one foot in front of the other in this race. We lay aside anything that can slow us down. We take off any excess weight. We lay aside sin that can trip us up and knock us down. We put aside everything and we focus and we run and we fix our eyes on Jesus. So those verses are really teaching us profound truth to continue moving forward. It's not complicated truth, but regardless of the circumstances, our duty is to keep going. And in verse 3, he, he finishes with an exhortation about Jesus. He says, For consider him who, who has endured such hostilities by sinners against himself to, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God has great compassion on us. He's not slapping us around every time we are weak. Rather, he's given us examples to encourage us. And that hostility that Jesus endured in verse 2 is disgust of enduring the cross. Now, I gave you that little backdrop. And the way I approach this, I don't study the whole book in advance. I study as I'm getting to each section. And I can tell you Something odd happened when I started studying at verse 4. When I first read it, it says this, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. My first reaction is, what just happened? We, we were going along, talking about Jesus and talking about the race, and then there's this sort of abrupt transition talking about our striving against sin and not resisting to the point of shedding blood. And then it goes into a section, verses 4 through 11, where it's talking about the discipline of God. It caused me a little bit of head scratching. Now, follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 4 through 11. Actually, I'm going to go back to verse 1. And I'm going to read all the way to verse 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now here's what caused my initial confusion. When I'm looking through and I'm reading encouragement, 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 all of a sudden it sounds like a rebuke. All of a sudden it sounds like he's criticizing them for something and I was a little bit taken aback. I wrote in my personal study notes, the way I go through things, I have a pencil that I'm constantly sharpening, I'm writing out questions to myself. I just wrote in my margin, abrupt transition. It seemed like we shifted gears and I was a little taken aback. So it seemed like we're enduring a race, then all of a sudden we're being rebuked for personal sin, and I was not following what was happening. Now, the other thing is I've heard verses 4 through 11 for a long time. I've heard those verses used. I've quoted some of those verses. I've used them a lot. But as I started studying, I realized that for all of the time I've looked at those verses, I've looked at them very shallowly. In other words, I didn't understand fully the implications of that text. I was even mentioning that to Debbie this week, that I was surprised because this text meant more than I thought it meant. Sometimes you come to a text and you assume you know what it means, and then you start studying and you go, wait a second, how did I not see that before? It doesn't mean my applications in the past of that text was wrong. It just means that I had an undeveloped understanding of the full import of what God is saying here. I often wonder, how do I miss something so obvious? But it all comes down to a particular word. So let me explain to you how we're going to approach this text. I actually have the whole section broken down into five parts, and this is going to take us a few weeks. I'm disappointed in one sense. I, I think it's important next week that we meet with the other class for adoption. There's a part of me that I was like, oh, I want to come back and teach, because I'm only going to barely introduce the material this week, and I'm going to deal with our first point. Then when we come back later, I'll kind of circle the wagons and I will start through the rest of it. And so some of what I say today is going to seem incomplete because I'm not going to have the opportunity to fully develop everything. I'm just saying trust me and bear with me. Don't criticize me until after I'm done with all five parts, even if it's a little confusing today. So I pray it's not confusing. But I'm going to start, and I don't normally do this, but I'm going to start by talking about a particular word that was the source of my confusion, and I don't want it to be the source of your confusion. I'm going to explain this word to you and explain the expansiveness of it, and you won't fully see it today in the text we're dealing with today, but that word is discipline. 
if you were listening and you were following along, what you see in verses 5 through 11 is that word over and over again, discipline, discipline, discipline. In my English translation, I counted nine different times it's used in that section. Discipline, discipline, discipline. Now, I looked in my Greek text, and I see eight instances of the word that's translated in English, discipline, and the ninth use is implied. In other words, the structure of the Greek grammar, it's not an incorrect interpretation that the English should have an additional use just to make it flow well. But in the Greek, this word over and over again is found. And that was my lack of understanding this text because of the confining definition I had of the word discipline. And I don't want you to labor under that same misconception about what that word means. So I want to take the unusual step of explaining that word before we actually come to it in the text. Because if you misunderstand that word, everything we talk about is going to be colored by that misunderstanding. Now, I think you could find many English definitions, but I just happened to look at the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. I have an app on my iPad. I pull it up, and it illustrates the issue with the word. In general, if we talk of discipline, and we're not talking about an academic discipline, we talk about discipline, I think most of us line up with the very first entry in Merriam-Webster, which is punishment. If we think discipline, we think punishment. It just goes hand in glove. And if that's the paramount meaning you have in your mind for the word discipline, you're going to look at this text and you're going to see everywhere it comes up, you're going to see punishment, 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 punishment. And the reading will be something like this. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is all for context, so we are approaching this correctly. The reading will be something like this. If you sin, God will punish you. Not in the eternal sense, if you're his child. Jesus died on the cross. But in the short term, just like an earthly parent spanks a child, God's going to spank us. In fact, if any one of us was talking who have younger children, and we said, I had to discipline my child today, you know exactly what that means. It means you had to punish them. That's... What's there? Now, here is the problem as we look at our text. That meaning of discipline is not theologically untrue. There are countless texts that make it clear God will correctively chastise his children. There are texts that make that clear. Every time we take the Lord's table... We give a warning to individuals because the Bible makes it clear, Paul makes it clear, some Christians even died because they were flippantly coming to the Lord's table in a state of sin as though it didn't matter and that God's holiness was not significant. You can take that meaning and apply it to our text that we're going to be covering over the next few weeks and you've got a lot of application points. And they're not necessarily all wrong. But if that's all you saw in these verses, you'd be missing, I think, the ultimate point of what's being taught. You'll miss the big picture because this goes beyond the idea of punishment. 
So before we jump into our explanation and teaching, I want to make sure you understand what discipline means as it's used in this context so that we don't get fixated on that concept of punishment, punishment, punishment. Now we've got to begin with the obvious. The book of Hebrews wasn't written in English. Notwithstanding what some people might think, English wasn't the language of the Bible. It was written in Greek. That was the book of Hebrews was written that way as well as all of the New Testament. And the Greek word that we translate properly as discipline has a more expansive meaning than simply the idea of punishment. It doesn't just mean a spanking, so to speak. Now, I look at a standard Greek lexicon, which, without getting too complicated, it's similar to a dictionary in the sense of you would go there to look for the meaning of these terminologies. And here is what is found with this word. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's paideia is one form. It means to train someone in accordance with proper rules of conduct and behavior to discipline, to train. Now I want to really have you focus on that. It means to train someone. It means to teach them to walk in a certain way. Certainly the concept of punishment can fit. I'm not saying that there is no, no place for that. I'm just saying it goes beyond just punishment. In fact, if you look in an English dictionary, you can find, you have to look several entries down, but you find as the fourth entry in the app that I have, training, Merriam-Webster, training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. I think that's much more to the point of what discipline means in this text. It's training, it's molding of our character, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with us committing Sin. It may involve that, but it's not necessarily so. So I'm going to put out a definition to plant in your mind. I don't expect you to remember it weeks from now, but this is what I think is a better understanding of that word discipline. Discipline is any method God uses to train us to live holy lives. Discipline is any method God uses to train us to live holy lives. I believe that is an accurate understanding of what this term discipline means in this section of Scripture. It could involve rebuking us. It could involve correcting us. It could just involve us being taught by the harsh circumstances of life. Discipline is any method God uses to train us to live holy lives. So with this as a backdrop, I'm going to actually start talking about the text now. I pray that I haven't confused you too much with that long introduction and you will see as we go into this, I think, how this plays out. But as I thought through how to outline this text, I did not, um, I, I just came up with five points. 
and it's five thoughts about the discipline of God. You could call these reflections, you could call these remembrances. Five thoughts about the discipline of God. And the first thought is this. Discipline must be kept in perspective. When I say discipline, I mean God's discipline. Discipline must be kept in perspective. Let's go back to verse 4, that that verse that started me down this path because I was a little taken aback by it. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. Again, it looked a little out of place to me. I know it's not out of place because I don't rewrite the Bible. This is what God said. But it was that contrast with verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That is a compassionate word from the Lord. Because most of us know something of growing weary and almost being ready to give up. Jesus is our example. He endured the cross with all the physical abuse that entailed, despising the shame. It was nothing to him. And we're told to follow his examples. Hang in there. Keep going. And then we see this point about resisting to the shedding of blood and you scratch your head and go, what are we even talking about? And the context is striving against sin. Now again, I praise the Lord for godly men who have gone before us, who have taught the word of God and have made great resources available for someone like me who looks and is a little slow to follow along. And I think now I understand fully what's happening, and it's not disjointed at all. In fact, it flows perfectly with the thoughts of the text. And so to understand, I think, what's being talked about in verse 4, I want to remind you of some of the things we saw about this great cloud of witnesses. So turn back to chapter 11 and look at verse 35. Now, just prior to that, there were some accounts of unnamed saints who had done great things. And the first clause of 35 fits in that in. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But now we start seeing something that this cloud of witnesses, these examples, endured. It says, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. And on and on about them not having clothes, not having things. What a catalog of ills. Torture. Their bodies were physically abused. Scourging, it's a very nasty process where they use whips and things to beat you so that your skin is exposed. Debbie and I watched a movie last night. I wasn't even thinking about the message. We watched a movie and at one point somebody was whipped and you could just see the open wounds on their back. And it was kind of, ugh. That's the type of thing that is being talked about. Skin being ripped away. Being sawn in two. I can't even think about that. Can you imagine the blood 
make Hollywood look tame by any stretch. Being pounded with rocks, being killed by swords, this is a bloody fate. Blood, blood, blood. Brutal for being nothing more than followers of the Lord. They didn't do anything except have faith, and that was the bloody end they met. But now fast forward to Jesus himself, because remember, our in this immediate context, our example is the cloud of witnesses we just reminded we're covered with blood. And now Jesus, who endured the cross, what did that look like? John 19, chapter 1 and... John chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, the crown of thorns probably was the start of the blood flowing. Jesus was scourged. Blood everywhere. And he's crucified. He's nailed to a cross. I can't even imagine the nastiness of his body at that point. Blood, blood, blood. And then the final indignity, Jesus had given up his spirit, but they're coming along. Do they need to break his legs? They stick a sword in his side and blood and water gush out. From a human perspective, by this point, Jesus' body was a bloody mess. In fact, I think in reality, you probably couldn't show that on any type of TV. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 is talking about. Jesus endured the cross. So here's the picture being painted in the verses before verse 4. Before we get to verse 4. God's faithful ones including Old Testament saints and including God's Son, were bloodied literally beyond description by wicked sinners who wanted to destroy them. In fact, in many cases, the bodies of those faithful ones were destroyed. When you're cut in two, your earthly life is over. Jesus really died. We know He rose again, but they killed His physical body. Countless other saints died in a bloody way for no other reason that they trusted the Lord. So with that little bit of a reminder, let's look back at verse 4 again. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. This verse pictures God's children to whom the book of Hebrews is written as, written as being in the same substantive circumstances as the cloud of witnesses as Jesus himself. They live in a world that is hostile to them. And in this case, when the reference is striving against sin in verse 4, I don't believe from the context it's talking about the struggle against personal sin. Rather, the wicked, sin-filled world in which we live, the wicked people who destroy Christians are personified as sin itself. 
Verse 1 was clearly talking about believers being entangled by personal sin. Here it's going beyond that and it's looking to the state of Christians when you exist and you're being persecuted and your circumstances are hard. The hostility of the fallen world around us, the wicked sinners who tormented the saints of old, bloodied them, killed them, the wicked sinners who killed our Lord, they're all personified as sin. Striving against sin in this context has a primary reference of striving against those wicked ones that are all around us who want to do us harm. The struggle against persecution, the struggle against mistreatment for being a Christian, the struggle against the forces of evil in a fallen world that seek to destroy God's children and keep God's children from completing the race that God called us to do. The very forces of evil that can cause God's children to grow weary and lose heart. Which is, comes to my first point, that discipline must be kept in perspective. Remember again, the author is addressing a church of people who know what it is to endure hardship for the gospel. Go back to chapter 10 for a moment. Let's look at verses 32 to 34, and the writer is reminding them of their past as Christians. Verse 32, but remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Verse 33, partly by being, being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly become, by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Verse 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. The recipients of the book that contains Hebrews chapter 12 verse 4 knew what it was like to be mistreated for their faith. Some of them had been publicly humiliated, embarrassed. Some of them had been in jail. Some of them had spent time visiting others in jail. Many of them had lost every penny they had. You know, we worry about identity theft sometimes. How about if persecutors of the faith just come in and take all your stuff and there's no recourse. You're penniless, you're broke, you're out of it. Again, this isn't for doing anything wrong. This is for being in Christ. And if I could speak a little bit bluntly, they've experienced already, based on verses 32 to 34, experienced Hardship and persecution that most of us couldn't even relate to. Officially sanctioned persecution. Officially sanctioned thievery. I think part of the reason there were exhortations for them not to lose heart, not to grow weary, don't turn back, keep pressing forward, keep your eyes on Jesus because what they had already dealt with was not pleasant. He knew it would be easy for some to think, I'm going to throw in the towel, that's enough, I lost my money, I've been in jail, I'm thought of as an idiot, everybody's humiliating me, my family is alienated from me. So in the midst of what was very real suffering, Jesus puts their suffering in perspective. God puts it in perspective for them, and he says this, 
you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. I don't think this is being cruel, but he's in essence saying, look, for all that you've endured, you haven't endured as much as they did. Don't get carried away with self-pity. You haven't been where Jesus was. You haven't been killed yet. You haven't been scourged with blood everywhere. You're striving against evil and you've endured some mistreatment, but it isn't as bad as what they endured. Don't lose sight of those things. And he's not saying you didn't endure anything. He's just saying, look, keep your troubles in perspective. The idea being they endured a lot worse than you and they could keep going, you can keep going. He wants them to recognize that in relation to the hardships of those who had been sawn in two and scourged and stoned and killed with swords, they weren't at that level yet. In relation to the unfair, unjust, bloody suffering of Jesus himself, it hasn't gotten that bad for you yet. It's not hard in the midst of trials to get tunnel vision. I can't believe what I'm having to endure. Boy, this is terrible. And if we're not careful, we can almost start thinking, boy, I'm the only one that's ever had to deal with this. And verse 4 is really a perspective. of saying, whoa, 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 brothers, sisters. You've endured real hardship, but you haven't endured that much. Nobody could possibly understand. There's no way I can put one foot in front of the other. And he's going, wait a minute. People suffered a lot worse than you, and they kept going. Let me encourage you. God's not ignorant of the struggles that you face. And they're real. I'm not minimizing them, just like I don't minimize my own struggles. We are often allowed by God to go undergo serious trials and hardships. But we need perspective on those things. We're not the first people to go through trials. We're not the first people to have difficulties. We're not the first Christians to live in a society where people think what you believe is wrong and foolish and you're bad for believing it. However bad our trials are, there are other Christians who've endured a whole lot worse. Even today, they're enduring a whole lot worse. Again, I don't think this is a callous rebuke saying, get over it. This isn't a, oh, okay, wait till my suffering gets to this point and then I can acknowledge it's real. It's real when we hurt now, when our emotions are broken and our issues are real but it's a reminder that no matter how bad things are they are not an insurmountable hurdle that give you an excuse to say okay I'm done one of the first verses I memorized and I can't even remember why I memorized it to start with I've never been good at memorizing lots of scripture but 1 Corinthians 10.13 I think the verse verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 12 is conveying the same principles that Paul was conveying in 1 Corinthians 10.13. That verse says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Life is hard and at times our trials are severe. Yet we never have an excuse as God's children to say, you know what, I just can't keep going. Yes, you can. If you're truly a child of God, yes, you can. There are people who have endured a lot worse than you who kept going. You can keep going. Might be a normal human thought to say, well, this is beyond me. This is my high water mark. I can't take anymore. But it's theologically untrue. I hear people say to me sometimes in counseling and other things, I can't take anymore, and I don't rebuke them. I don't get on to them, but it's not true. You can take whatever God gives you because God will never leave you nor forsake you, and no matter how deep the water is, no matter how high the waves are, God will not let you sink. I think part of the reason we're commanded by the book of Hebrews to be a part of the local church is because in the midst of these trials, in the midst of these difficulties, we need one another to remind us of what is at stake. We need to be reminded that when I think about what I'm going through, I can look over there and say, boy, look what they're going through. Well, I just don't like this and this is a hard thing, but man, they just had a grandchild die. God has a way by putting all of us weak sinners together with all of our problems of keeping our problems in perspective if we don't become self-absorbed and self-focused. That's why we're supposed to not forsake our own assembling together. Part of being together is to encourage one another. We need encouragement in trials. We need help to see our situation in proper perspectives. We need the comfort of one another to point us back to Jesus. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ who have endured hardship to come alongside of us and say, there's hope. It kills me to have to stop now. I want to keep going because I love what's coming up. As we get into our next points, the next time we gather, we're going to see a little bit more, and I'm going to explain a little bit more how these trials are part of God's discipline. The trials aren't always because of our sin. They're a part of God's training ground for us. But the next point is crucial. When we're going through hardships and trials, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. What we're going to learn from this text is proof that God loves you as His child. Let me close our time with prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of trials, you walk with us. We thank you that in the midst of trials, we have brothers and sisters of Christ here at Lakeside to walk with us. Lord, I pray that we would keep things in perspective. That we would understand, even when our trials are very real, there are others who are suffering more. Lord, no matter how bad our circumstances are, it will never equal Christ who experienced the full wrath of God for sinners. Lord, I pray that you give us encouragement. Give us hope. Help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.